0: This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 13. And as you make your way to the 13th chapter of Job, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that the bulk of this book, it's centered around a conversation that unfolded between a man named Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I should also remind you that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they initially assured Job that they were just there to comfort him during his time of incredible suffering, but rather than comforting him as they promised, rather than you know just communicating with him, compassionate counsel that comes from caring friends, well, they all instead took turns accusing him of living in unrepentant sin. And while we know that they were engaging in the hypocritical assumptions that result in false accusations, uh, well, this didn't stop them from assuring Job that he deserved the pain. He deserved the suffering that he was enduring, and the reason why is because of his unconfessed sin. Well, rather than allowing his so-called counselors to condemn him, you know, according to all their false accusations... Job defended his steadfast commitment to the Lord, and as we consider the way that Job was able to defend himself against the false accusations of his friends, well, I think we should take some time tonight to examine our own lives. We should take a moment to ask, is my spiritual commitment to Christ easy to defend? Is my spiritual commitment to Christ easy to defend, or are my counselors possibly correct? When they accuse me of living in sin. Well, with these questions in mind, let's consider the way that Job responded to the false accusations made by his friends. And so if you would look with me here at Job chapter 13, I want to begin our study there at verse 1. Here we read, Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. But you forgers of lies, you are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be silent, and it would be your wisdom. (laughs) Well, here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Job, he's continuing to contend with his counselors, and it's there in verses 1 and 2. There he assures them that he was not their intellectual inferior. In other words, Job assured his friends that he wasn't some sort of slow learner or late bloomer. No, instead, he had eyes that could see what was true. He was able to see reality, and he had ears that could hear what was false. He knew when he was being lied about, and he also had a heart that could comprehend the repercussions of his sins and the outcome of sinful actions. And it's for this reason that he was less than blessed by the false accusations of his friends. And so he effectively said, hey, can you guys just be quiet? Can you guys just be, be wise enough to just be quiet? At the same time, Job seemed to think that his faithful commitment to the Lord had given him the right to ask the Lord to provide him with a reasonable response for all of his pain and suffering. As a matter of fact, notice again there in, in the middle of verse 3, actually there at the beginning of verse 3 Job declares i would speak to the almighty and i desire to reason with god in other words job here wanted to argue his case before the righteous judge of heaven and earth and while he expected god to show up and explain the reason for his pain and suffering you know job's conversation with our creator uh, really wouldn't go the way that he was hoping for as a matter of fact when we get to the to the near end of this book We're going to learn about the day when God did finally show up and interrupt this whole conversation. And it's in the beginning of chapter 38 where the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and asked, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Wow. I'm looking forward to our study of chapter 38, but, uh, uh, but it'll help you to know uh, at this point that the Lord is going to show up and uh, he is going to provide Job with greater perspective regarding his situation. And rather than allowing Job to present all of his questions about why this and why the pain and why the suffering and these sorts of things, the Lord instead launches into a series of 77 questions which cover a range of topics that include cosmology, oceanography, meteorology, astronomy, theology, and so much more. And listen, it didn't take long for Job to realize that the finite mind of a man is immensely inferior to the infinite mind of God. You know, whether we're talking about atoms or the entire universe, we've barely begun to scratch the scientific surface of the material world that God made just out of nothing. You know, God spoke the entire universe into existence, and we've barely scratched the scientific surface of trying to understand these things. Like, we're, we're, we're still grappling with, you know, why atoms can be mostly nothing and yet solid, you know, and, and it just baffles us, and yet this is just something that God just did in a couple of days, you know. You know, six days, spoken forth a creation out of nothing. It's nothing for God, and we're like, what's what's this? A rock, you know, and and we think we're so smart. When it comes to the mind of man, we don't fully grasp the connection between the physical brain and the immaterial mind. Where does the brain stop and the and the mind start? Who's the looker within? You know, who's actually looking through your eyeballs right now? I know it's you, but where is this immaterial being looking from within the the material of man? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. You know, I don't don't know if I can figure this out. But for God, it's just kind of like, well, I could explain it to you if you could even understand what I was saying, but you couldn't. Job, you know, uh, is, is you know, wanting to interview God. Job is wanting to question God about why he's suffering all these sorts of things. And God finally shows up and says, do you even understand anything? Do you understand how I fashion the world? Do you understand why I, you know, hedged in the oceans, you know, in this sort of way? Do you even understand how the earth is suspended from nothing? And and God will just go on and on with 77 questions of things that Job takes for granted and yet has to know why he himself is, so, is suffering in the way that... You know, that's, that's just the nature of man, though, isn't it? Everything is about me. Everything is about me. You know, why am I suffering in this? Why is my experience this way? And, oh, gee, uh, gee whiz, we need, we need help. We need help to get our minds off of ourselves and to get our minds back on the Lord. When Job told his friends that he desired to reason with God, he was failing to realize that he was actually asking to argue with the infinite being who created human reason. God created human reason, and we're going to turn around and have a loose understanding of reason and and try to argue with the God who created reason? It's unreasonable. (laughs) Yeah. And, And yet Job, in his mind, is thinking that I'm going to have this exchange with God, and I'm going to be the winner of the argument, and... It's very silly. We are very silly people. When we get to Job chapter 40, we'll actually find Job in the middle of that conversation. Not even to the end of it. He's in the middle of the conversation. And it's in Job chapter 40, verse 4, where Job then answers the Lord and says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. You know, this will be good for many of us to do even, even tonight. You know, just just be quiet and put your hand over your mouth and allow the Lord to, to show you something. Job, in the middle of God's interview, in the middle of the 77 questions, just finally just says, I give up. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing here. God help me. It's at that point in time when Job covers his mouth and finally realizes that God doesn't owe anyone an explanation about anything. Plain and simple. If you think God owes you an explanation about something that he's allowed, you are confused. Would the servant enter into the chamber of the king and say, King, you owe me an explanation? No. And yet, how many of us have that mindset when it comes to our relationship with God? Well, Jesus is my homeboy. Nope, he's the king of kings. You're a servant. And we should really come to grasp this in the way we live our lives. Rather than arguing with God when things don't go our way, as if God's up in heaven and saying, how can I make sure everything goes bungee's way? You know, how silly. It would be silly for me to argue with God when things don't go my way. And rather than being upset with God because he didn't make things go my way, shouldn't I just assume that maybe God's ways are higher than my ways? That he knows what he's doing? And I really don't. We'd all do well to embrace the perspective that Job eventually acquired on the day when the Lord questioned him when he put his hand over his mouth and he said, I got nothing. I got nothing. I like the way that King Solomon summed all this up in Proverbs chapter 15. It's verse 33 where he declares the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. Christian, listen, whenever we start struggling with questions about why the Lord is allowing this, or why the Lord allowed that, or why is the Lord allowing me to suffer, and these sorts of things, we ought to take a step back, have some humility, and remember that those who want the wisdom of infinite instruction must first learn to walk in the fear of the Lord, which is to say that we must learn how to respect him and, and and exalt him high above anything that we think we are. With this as the goal, we should turn our attention back to the text before us tonight. And so let's pick up our study of Job chapter 13. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 6. Here Job declares, Now hear my reasoning and heed the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak wickedly for God and talk deceit, deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when he searches you out? Or can you mock him as one mocks a man? He will surely rebuke you. If you secretly show partiality, will not his excellence make you afraid and the dread of him fall upon you? Now here in these verses we find Job, he's encouraging his friends to realize that the Lord is not pleased with those who secretly show partiality. And just to be clear, Job here is referring to those who secretly slant their story or their testimony in order to show favor to those that they've embraced according to their own personal biases. Uh, And in the context of this passage here, Job is probably referring to the bias-based partiality that his friend Zophar was possibly demonstrating when he repeated the same false accusations previously presented by Eliphaz and Bildad. So, so you know, Job might be referring to that. It's also possible that, that all three of them were basing their biases upon their agreed-upon belief that the Lord only allows the guilty to suffer in the way that Job was suffering. But regardless of the reason, the truth remains the same, that God is opposed to the secret partialities that lead us to have unbiblical biases. I like the way that James put it in James chapter 2. It's verses 8 and 9 where he declares, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now this word partiality is actually translated here in James 2 from a Greek word which in this context, it speaks of an unrighteous favoritism. They are also defined the same Greek word in this way. He says that partiality is the fault of one who when called on to give judgment has respect of the outward circumstances of man and not to their intrinsic merits. Yeah, meritocracy is out the door but rather partiality based on well, I like their haircut or their skin color or I like their clothing or I like their, their, their class in in you know, in in society. And according to James, those who engage in these sorts of biased-based judgments are actually sinning, and they're sinning against the Lord. Christian, listen, those who are willing to make false accusations against others because of their race or their gender or their financial status, they're actually failing to love their neighbor as they love themselves. And listen, the, the, the reverse of this is true in the sense that those who show favor to others... Not just those who accuse others falsely, but those who show favor because of their race or their gender or financial status. Well, they're also failing to love their neighbor in the way that they love themselves. And with that being the case, we should do our best to avoid the sin of partiality by learning how to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. And this, despite their race, despite their gender, despite their upbringing, despite their financial status whether they're rich or they're poor, whether they're, you know, red, yellow, black or white, or whatever you want to say, you know, like whatever. Love them in the way that the Lord Jesus loves us. I like the way that Paul put it in 1st Timothy chapter 5, its verse 21 where he declares, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. In other words, Christians ought to be people who are free from every prejudice. And not only that, but we should also avoid making judgments that are based on partiality. Listen, every cop isn't automatically innocent because they're a cop. And every criminal is not automatically guilty of, of every single thing simply because they've been a criminal. And we have to get away from, from this idea of judging people based on what we see, based on these partial prejudices. Instead, we should learn to love one another with the impartial love of the Lord, the the love that would lead us to sacrifice for one another in the name of Jesus Christ. At the same same time here, we should also live our lives in such a way that those who accuse us of doing something wrong can easily be proven wrong themselves. And, And with this as the goal, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 13, If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 12, because here Job goes on to declare here, he says, your platitudes are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Hold your peace with me and let me speak. Then let come on me what may. Now, here in these verses, we find Job, he's continuing to put his counselors in their proper place. And he did this by insisting that their platitudes were proverbs of ashes. I love that. Their defenses are defenses of clay. Or in other words, he's informing them that their wisest sayings were as wise as dust. You know, their their wisest sayings, their, their wisest arguments were like ashes, and their strongest arguments were as strong as clay pots, which are easily dashed to the ground. At the same time, he also encouraged them to hold their peace, which was a very polite way of saying, hey, shut up. You know, he's saying, hey, hold your peace, be quiet, or shush, as some might say. And and, and I like the way that the scholars who created the New English translation render verse 13, they put it like this: refrain from talking with me, so that I may speak, then let come to me what may. In other words, the steadfast faith of Job was not being swayed by the false accusations of his friends. And the reason why? Well, it's due to the fact that he knew he was a blameless, God-fearing man who uh, feared the Lord and shunned evil. And, and in light of his defense, I, I can't help but to remember something that Paul wrote to the Christians in Thessalonica. It's actually in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it's verses 10 through 12. That's where uh, Paul declares this. He says, You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's encouraging the Christians there at the church in Thessalonica to follow in his example and to do this by becoming those believers who are walking worthy of the one who has called us into his own kingdom and glory. With this as the goal, he reminded them of the way that he himself had behaved while he was with them, and he he reminds them that he behaved in a devout, just, and blameless way. Paul was a man who was devout in his devotion to the Lord. He was just and he was blameless. And in light of his example, it's important for us to realize that every believer has been been called to behave in the same sort of way. Paul himself even said, follow me as I follow Christ. And Paul was a man who behaved in a way that was devout, just, and blameless. And listen, the Christian who is confident they're, that they're walking in a way that is worthy of the Lord, well, they can also be certain that our, our accusers must then be incorrect. If we are living a life that is worthy of the Lord, then our ac- accusers are incorrect about their accusations. And it's for this reason that we should seek the power of the Holy Spirit, so that we can walk worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus. I mean, we're not going to do this in our natural flesh. We're not going to live this kind of a, of a life that pleases God by the power of our own fallen flesh, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do this. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live above reproach. And listen, those who are living above reproach can easily defend themselves against every false accusation. And while I realize that a clear conscience won't always save us from the pain and suffering that we experience here in this world, a clear conscience will provide us with some peace of mind that helps us to remember that those who trust in Jesus Christ will eventually be saved from the suffering that the Lord allows us to endure while we're here in this world. With this in mind, I want to consider the way that Job puts it here in our text tonight. If you would look with me there at Job chapter 13, we'll pick up our study beginning at verse 14. Here Job asks, Why do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation for a hypocrite could not come before him. Now here in these verses we find Job, he's presenting us with a very incredible amount of confidence in in his connection with the Lord. And if you would notice again, it's verse 15 where he cries out, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. What an incredible statement. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. In other words, Job was assuring his friends that he was going to continue trusting in the Lord no matter the outcome. He was going to continue trusting in the Lord regardless of the outcome. And listen, even if the Lord decides to take our life earlier than we would like him to, we can still trust that his plan for us is perfect. I like the way that Paul put it in Romans chapter 14. It's verse 8 where he declares, If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Christian, listen, those of us who are walking by faith with the Lord Jesus, we can take comfort in the fact that our life is in His hands even after this body dies. Our life is forever in His hands. And what this means here in this world is listen, the enemy can't rob us of one day that the Lord has determined to give us. It's true. And it's true of the people who are still sheltering in place for fear of a pandemic. The Lord is not going to allow the enemy to rob us of one day that the Lord has determined to give us. Here's how King David put it in the 139th Psalm. It's verse 16 where he declares, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. In other words, the days that the Lord has fashioned for us are going to be fulfilled. Every single one of them. The days that the Lord has fashioned for us are going to be fulfilled. And listen, you can can live those days in fear of every bad thing that could possibly happen. Or you can live all of those days walking in faith, trusting in the Lord. Your choice. But the Lord is going to give you those days that he's fashioned for you. Not only that, but listen, the day of our demise will be a glorious day as we enter into the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For the Christian, the day of our demise is a wonderful day for, for us. No doubt that people will mourn as, as, we, as we depart. But for us, the day of our demise is a glorious day because, for the Christian, this is the day when when we finally enter into the presence of our glorious Savior Jesus. With that being the case, we can cry out with Job, "Though he slay me, yet I will trust him, because he will always be my salvation." With that, we can rejoice in knowing that the believers who are falsely accused here in this world, well, there's coming a day when we will eventually be vindicated. And I want to consider how Job put it here in our text tonight. And if you would look with me there, Job chapter 13, we'll pick up at verse 17. Here he declares, Listen carefully to my speech and to my declaration with your ears. See now, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be vindicated. Who is he who will contend with me? If now I hold my tongue, I perish. Now, here in these verses, we find Job, he's assuring his friends that they needed to pay careful attention to the words of his defense, and the reason why? Well, it's because there was no doubt in his mind that he was innocent of the charges that they brought against him, and and while this is not to suggest that he was a man who was free of sin, I want to remind you that he was a man who was offering the proper sacrifices for his sins. I'll remind you, it was back in chapter 1. There, we learned that Job would regularly rise up early in the morning and offer burnt offerings, both for his kids and for himself. And listen, he not only offered sacrifices for the sins that he knew about, but he also offered sacrifices for the sins that they may have been guilty of but weren't quite sure about. (laughs) So. You know, Job was offering burnt offerings for for sins plus you know like anything that maybe I'm missing out on here. I want to offer up something for that as well. That was a that was a careful man. He wanted to carefully walk with the Lord, and and, and without debate, Job was according to the Lord even a blameless and upright man who feared God and shunned evil. And with that being the case, well, we shouldn't be surprised to find him assuring his friends that. The, the, the Lord was going to vindicate, vindicate him. He had no doubt that there was coming a day when the Lord was going to vindicate him. That word vindicate, which is found there at the end of verse 18, it's translated from a Hebrew word which speaks of an accused person who is acquitted or justified before a judge. What this means is that Job was fully expecting to be acquitted before his accusers. And the reason why is because he was a man who was not only shunning evil, but again, he was offering the proper sacrifices for the sins that he was guilty of. And and of course, those sacrifices uh, were, were actually placeholders for the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Simply put, Job was a man who was living a life that was pleasing to the Lord because he was trusting in this sacrificial system, which would eventually be fulfilled by Jesus Christ. In light of his example, we too ought to become those believers who are not only trusting in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ by which we are saved, but we should, as born-again believers, then walk in the Spirit so that we don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh as we continually offer the sacrifice of praise. And in this way, listen, the Lord will help us to live a life that is, in fact, above reproach. I like the way that the Apostle Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter 3. It's verses 15 through 17 where he declares, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Notice, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers... Those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. In other words, you know, rather than living a life that good you know, could be perceived by others as ungodly, the Apostle Peter encouraged us to live in such a way that our conscience is clear, and yes, even if this ends up causing us to suffer for the sake of our Savior, we ought to engage in good conduct and to the point where even if people are reviling us for our good conduct which is becoming more and more common here in the 21st century that we are willing to engage in that good conduct we are you know, willing to suffer then suffer for doing what is right even when society says no that's wrong and we're going to persecute you for it. And Peter says, hey, it's better. it's better to suffer for doing what's right than to end up suffering for doing what is wrong. And Peter tells us that we ought to do this having a good conscience. It's often been said that a clear conscience makes a soft pillow. And I like that. Because when you have a bad conscience, it's hard to sleep. When, when your conscience is, is, is unclear, when, when, when you know you're doing something wrong, hard to sleep, but a clear conscience makes a soft pillow. And a clear conscience will also provide us with confidence whenever we find ourselves facing false accusers who have come to give us their so-called wise counsel about what we're doing wrong. And knowing that there will be times when we're forced to face false accusers, listen, those who are living a life that's above reproach, well, they can rest assured that the Lord is going to vindicate us there at the Bema seat of Jesus Christ. And so we don't have to worry about the false accusations. If you have people making false accusations against you and you know they're wrong and you know that your conscience is clear, don't, don't waste one night tossing and turning over it. Just sleep tight, knowing that what they're saying about you is false. And, you know, people who want to know the truth, they'll figure it out. And eventually the Lord will vindicate you. Now, Job was certain that he was going to be vindicated by the Lord, and yet he was still confused about the pain of his suffering. He was still confused about why the Lord, you know, in his mind, he thought the Lord was causing him to suffer. And so the final section of this chapter is Job crying out to the Lord. And if you would, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 13. We'll look there beginning at verse 20. Here Job cries out to the Lord, only two things do not do to me. Then I will not hide myself from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and let not the dread of you make me afraid. Then call and I will answer or let me speak. Then you respond to me. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Will you frighten a leaf driven to and fro? And will you pursue dry stubble? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch closely all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man decays like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Well, you might think that these are the lyrics of some new metal song, but, uh, but, but they're not. This is just a depressed dude crying out to the Lord. And it's here in the final section of this chapter where we find Job seeking relief from his suffering by crying out to the Lord. And I can't help but to hear the exasperation in the words of this man who was just looking for some level of understanding. For example, notice again in verse 22, Job cries out you know, for, for communication by declaring, call to me and I will answer or listen to me and I'll res- and let you respond. You know, he's saying either way just you know either you talk or me talk or someone talk please talk. Please tell me something. Job was stressing out because the Lord didn't seem to be answering his prayers and I have no doubt that we've all been there at some point. I have no doubt that we've all cried out to the Lord and we just felt like our prayers were We're hitting the the ceiling of the house like a Teflon pan. You know, it's just like everything's just bouncing right back down on top of us. Nothing's making its way into heaven. And if this sounds like your situation, please trust me when I tell you that God hears your prayers. And sometimes he answers with a yes, and sometimes he answers with a no, and sometimes he answers with a maybe, and sometimes he doesn't answer. Not in the time frame that we want. But who knows better? You are God listen, if you're praying and asking God for something and it just seems like you're getting no response, just continue doing the last thing that he told you. I've seen so many Christians scrambling in the absence of information. They've prayed, God didn't answer, and so they start making all these decisions. Hey, you're not that smart. Quit making things up as you go. If God's not answering, then just keep doing what he told you to do last. And keep walking by faith until he tells you something new. We don't need God to answer every single prayer immediately. What we need to do is just learn how to walk by faith. And the best way to do that is just keep doing the last thing that he told you to do. Well, Job's freaking out because God's not answering his prayer. And, you know, he's coming to the clu- conclusion then that God must be mad at him for his sins. And, and so he wanted to know if he was, in fact, guilty of unrepentant sin. As a matter of fact, it's there in Job 13, verses 23 and 24. There again, Job cries out, How many are my iniquities and sins? I don't think, I don't think he could handle the number. But he wants to know. He says, make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Now, on the one hand here, Job was certain that he was going to be vindicated. He was certain that his friends were falsely accusing him. And yet, at the same time, he also takes the time to, to prayerfully ask the Lord you know, to expose any iniquities or any transgressions that he may have been unaware of. And I can appreciate the humility of this prayer. He's certain that he's not sinning against God, and yet, if he is, he wants to know. This reminds me of the prayer that King David presented in the 139th Psalm. It's verses 23 and 24 of that chapter where David declares this. He uh, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting from this we can see how important it is to maintain a humble heart when it comes to our relationship with the lord you know if we really are trying to you know serve the lord and and, and walk in the in the power of the holy spirit then we can you know have some level of confidence that you know we are uh, you know keeping short accounts with the lord and maintaining that close connection with him and and so when the accusers come along and start accusing us of things you know it, there can be that level of confidence of i'm not uh, you know i'm not sure that, that you're right about that and yet at the same time we might as well be humble enough to go to the lord and say hey are they right are their accusations correct i don't think they're correct i don't see what they're talking about but maybe you do lord search my heart Help me to see any wicked way that's in me that I can't see. I think that's a prayer that the Lord would love to answer. Rather than rushing to reject those who rebuke us, we do well to go and take their concerns to the Lord and search our own hearts and and ask the Lord to expose any sins that might be keeping us from living above reproach. At the same time, I also encourage you to remember that the Lord is the merciful one. He's the merciful one who is quick to cleanse us from the stain of our sin. I like the way that King David put it in the 103rd Psalm. It's there where he declares, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I love these verses because the Lord is the merciful one who has not dealt with us according to our iniquities. Listen, if the Lord were to deal with us according to our iniquities, then, then we, would, we, we would have been snuffed out years ago. If the Lord was dealing with us according to what we deserve, we would have been removed from this earth years ago but he doesn't. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He doesn't punish us according to our iniquities, but rather he gives us the opportunity for repentance. And he's the merciful one who's ready to remove our transgressions from us. And and listen, when we turn to him and, and trust in Jesus Christ with a repentant heart, he separates us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. Now, how far is that? how far is the east from the west? And, and I would say that, that, that there seems to be an infinite amount of space, if you can call it that. That as far as you can go to the east and as far as you can go to the west, that's as far as he's separated us from our sins. And isn't that nice to know? With that being the case, we can be certain that Job was out of line when he questioned the mercy of God. Notice again there, beginning at verse 25. There again he asks, Will you frighten a leaf driven to and fro, and will you pursue dry stubble? Will you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth? You put my feet in the stocks and watch closely all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Now, here in these verses we find Job, he's comparing the Lord to a, a bitter author who was keeping a a record of wrong. And not only that, but he was also comparing the Lord to an unjust prison guard who was stopping him from moving forward in his faith. And and then with a heart that's filled with grief, Job concludes this chapter with this declaration of depression by declaring, man decays, man decays like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. What an outlook on life. Man decays like a rotten thing and like a garment that is moth-eaten. True, that is the end of man here in this world. Thankfully, this world is not the end. And yet from this, we can see that distorted thoughts about God will always result in depressive thoughts about this life. Distorted thoughts about God will always result in depressive thoughts about this life. And with that being the case, the Christian who wants to live above reproach, we ought to detain those depressive thoughts before they become words that infect the minds of others. No doubt that we all have just ridiculous thoughts that float around in our heads and depressive ideas, and we all struggle with, with you know, the things that just pop up in our minds, whether they be from the flesh or the, the devil or the demons that are, you know, thro- shooting those fiery darts into our minds and, you know... Throughout the course of the day, I'm sure we all have just nonsensical ideas that pop up in the, in the brain. The worst thing that you can do with those ideas is let them become words that come out of your mouth. And I know it's a struggle. It's a struggle to get a hold of those thoughts. It's a struggle to stop those ideas from becoming sentences that we say. And yet that's exactly what we, should, what we should do. And when those thoughts come up and, and when we have those de- depressive ideas, I, I think that we should follow the instructions that Paul presented in Colossians chapter 3. It's there where he declares, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and, and admonishing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Christian, listen, rather than allowing our disappointments to become distorted thoughts about God that end up becoming words of discouragement that we pass on to others, rather than allowing all of that to transpire, let's remember that the Lord has called us to simply encourage one another With the word of Christ. We need to encourage one another with the word of Christ, and that's why he tells us to first let the peace of God rule in our hearts. When all these depressive, distorted thoughts about God start creeping in, we need to get back to the word of God so that the peace of God can rule in our hearts, and then we can become those believers who are quick to admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as we sing with grace. In our hearts unto the Lord. Simply put, the church should be like a musical. That's right. We ought to be singing to one another. And I'm not talking about some lame Disney musical that glorifies some sort of secular or even sometimes a sinful life. But but instead I'm talking about the sort of musical where God is being glorified. Where the songs that we're singing glorify God. and, And in this way we're encouraging one another. And okay, so I, you know, you don't have to sing if you don't want to. I actually prefer that you don't, most of you. But uh, have you heard you? No, but seriously, I mean, you know, even just taking from the Psalms, just taking you know those concepts from the Psalms and just passing on those encouraging ideas. And when you hear people complaining or when you find yourself wanting to complain, just grabbing something from the Psalms and just glorifying God with those incredible words. The next time you feel like complaining because things aren't going your way, just remember you are not the center of the universe. Sorry, I know your mommy told you that you were, but she was wrong. We are not the center of the universe. God is. And so if we feel like complaining because things aren't going our way, let's ask the Lord, the center of our universe, to fill our hearts with a psalm or a spiritual song so that we can then take those those words that glorify God and proclaim the praises of the Lord. And yeah, even when we find ourselves like Job in the midst of pain and suffering. Let's pray.